Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thanks for tuning in. Listen, I can't think of a more timely episode. I'm sure if you're listening to this, you're probably well aware of the recent Supreme Court decisions regarding either abortion or gun control rights or climate change and the EPA. The list goes on. And then also the partisanship we're dealing with in politics a looming recession, the ongoing pandemic, there are a lot of life-changing events occurring as we speak. And perhaps now more than ever, we need people who are willing to challenge the status quo to think about a better way to live, a better way to be, better guidelines to live by, etc. And perhaps you don't want to think that large. Maybe you're not trying to change the world, as, as many of us are not. But you do want to make changes, whether it's at your company, with the team you lead, in your family, with your spouse, with your kids. It is imperative that we cultivate the ability to challenge conventional wisdom and then improve upon it. For that reason and many more, I'm so excited to have back on the show one of our top guests, Todd Cashton. And Todd is the author of a brand new book called The Art of Insubordination. How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. 
Now, if the name Todd Cashin rings a bell, perhaps you've read a book, but you may remember him from an episode, I think something like seven years ago, episode 215, where we talked about how to achieve fulfillment. Todd is an exceptional thinker, but also an excellent communicator. And those two things don't go together that often. And when they do, well, that's called podcast gold, which honestly, I think this episode is. As you can assume from the introduction, this episode is about many things, but primarily it's what does it mean to dissent or defy effectively? Why do we need to do that? And then, of course, how do we do that? If you like what you hear, you know the drill, but listen, it's really important. Number one, wherever you listen, make sure you hit that follow or subscribe. You don't want to download willy-nilly. Have this going. We only release every other week, so you don't want to miss those. And tell a friend, these are the kinds of conversations, the nuance, the detail, the time that we need to be having. And really, podcasting is one of the only places left for them. We're not trying to be flashy. We're not trying to only talk with the stars. We're trying to improve the way people think and question. Help us do that. Let's turn it over to the episode with Todd as we talk about his brand new book, The Art of Insubordination. How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. Enjoy. Listen, you got this new book, The Art of Insubordination. Uh, Before we were hitting record, you said you think you leveled up. You think it's one of your best books. Tell me why. What is it about this book that you enjoy, that intrigues you so much, that so, you know, resonates with who you are and what you want to do? I mean, for me... One of the mistakes I think authors often make is they try to put two years, invest in one construct, and think it's the panacea for life's ills, and it's the promised land. And I've written one of those books. I wrote a book, Curious. You've got the forgiveness books out there. You've got the kindness books. You've got the grit books. You have, you know, you have the the savoring books. And we all know, just from our own examination of our own lives and other people, that it's a jagged profile of strengths and there's the challenges of working in relationships and the challenges of working in teams and groups. And so this book, I spent six years doing a deep dive on history and sociology and psychology. And I realized that there hasn't really been a good book about if you don't have power and status and you don't have the numbers behind you, how can you be influential? What's the pathway of doing it? Because if you know, if you're Putin, you can get everyone to comply with your wishes. Doesn't mean that they converted to your view. Doesn't mean they agree with you. But they're, you've got them. And so, if you're a minority voice, if you're Ukrainians, if you end up being the newcomer for a company, if you end up being the person that was drafted in the eighth round and you made it to a you know to a uh, a football team, um, how can you be influential? And this is a path of strategies of exactly how to do it based on science. How does this differ from books such as The Art of Influence? Well, when you get to these books, uh, the Dale Carnegie books upward of you know how to make friends and influence people and, and the other ones that are out there, there's a number of tools and strategies, but they're really for human beings writ large. And this one is very specific for, do you recognize that there's an authority figure that's not acting appropriately or has some dysfunctional ideas? Do you recognize a norm that's outdated? Do you recognize a rule that you should question whether to obey? And in these cases, 
because life is a series of social hierarchies and if you're not at the top rungs what you have to do to be influential is very different you can't just be the loudest person in the room which is a horrible proxy for the quality of an idea you can't just be the person that has the most friends in the room you're likable but likability is only moderately correlated with credibility and the only reason it's related to credibility is because people use likability as a very poor indicator that you are in fact credible but those ideas don't stand the test of time what happens when you have a good idea a good insight or a good criticism but you don't have the ability to push people to agree with you automatically so for that type of influence it's very contextualized and every one of us every human being even the Elon Musk's even the Steve Jobs um, even the Beyonce's they've had points where they're in a room with power players where these are the strategies that are going to be useful man you hit you hit a, on a word there that I've spent such a, a large portion of my life thinking about, which is likability. Especially professionally, I've often thought if they like me, then it will work out. And honestly, for the majority of it, I think it has. I'm pretty sure I got my first job just because they liked me, right? I played golf. Uh, we went to similar you know, schools and did similar things. And so, okay, you're hired. But then when you contrast that with some of these world movers, the musks and the jobs, and a lot of people that are a little prickly, I don't think we would call them like likable. What's the difference between if I'm just an average guy trying to change something, get my ideas across, have some influence, but I'm not Elon Musk. I'm not Steve Jobs trying to take over the world. Does likability play a factor when we're playing at that maybe JV level, if you want? It does, but it's a little bit more particular. So let's get into the nuances of likability. So you could, you could think of influence as having three pillars. One is how trustworthy are they? One is how, how biased are you? And the other one is how competent are you? Now, many a times when it comes to a group setting or it comes to an audience, they focus too much on, do I believe someone is trustworthy? They don't focus on the bias. Basically, do you have a psychological conflict of interest? So um, if it ends up being that you created a new measure for organizations to measure leadership, and I called it the Kajian Leadership Quotient, well, now every time that I talk about the science and the benefits and why it's better than its competitors, I have a psychological and a financial conflict of interest. So often, if people are extremely likable or they're short on time, they miss those conflicts of interest. If you, are, if you don't have the power and the status, or you're from a marginalized group, for example, in this case, the way that you gain likability is not necessarily by being kind, compassionate, and friendly. It's by answering the question the audience wants to know. Do you understand us, and are you one of us? That's how you gain likability. Now, there's some dark sides to this that we can get to, but it's essentially is if you go to New York City and you're trying to convince a bunch of cab drivers that maybe buying the medallion cabs, which, you know, the state decide they're only to sell a small number of them is problematic. And Uber is actually a good thing in the long term, although we can improve the way that Uber actually operates. The only way that you can sell that to them and they're going to listen to you is if they under do you are you one of us? Do you know the cab industry? Do you know that my father and my grandfather, this is what they've spent their entire lives on? They were immigrants coming here in order to spend all of their money just to invest in a single cab? Because if you don't, I'm not interested in hearing about you. 
So you have to you have to you have to prove that you are you have either have group membership or you've done due diligence and you understand what that group is. When does that become the most important aspect? Any time that the group can raise questions about your credibility, essentially, is why sh- why should I listen to you? So even if you're a celebrity figure, you know, when Andrew Yang came into, not that I want to keep on focusing on New York, but I miss <laughs> being in New York City, and now I live in Virginia. When Andrew Andrew Yang tried to become mayor of New York, a lot of people had the question, which is, wait a second. During COVID, you lived in Minnesota. You had a house out there. Like you're not one of you didn't grow up in New York City. Like, is this just a small platform for you to get national prominence again? Uh, for asking this question, perfectly fair question. What you don't want to be doing and trying to be influential is get caught that they're wrong by them asking whether you're one of us. That's a question that you have to actually treat. You have to treat seriously, and you have to show that there is veracity to asking a question like that. And if it ends up being that you you join, you know, you, you join a sport team, and you come from a small college, and and you know, no one knows where that that school is from. You have to show that, prove to us that you belong in some capacity. Now here, you might lean on competence of like, listen, let's go out in the field, ignore where I came from. I can catch with the best of them. Um, I can hit with the best of them. Um, I can run with the best of them. And once that's how you prove your worth, that you're a member of, of belonging there. You know, you know what you just clarified for me when I was stating this idea of likability being a critical component of potentially any success I've had in the professional world. I think it's always come secondary to that idea of credibility. Like, I don't think I've assumed you could just sacrifice one and achieve it, you know, regardless of that. So that's, I'm glad that you crystallized the fact that people are going to be looking at both and additional aspects to determine, you know, should, should they listen to you? Should you have influence? Yes. Yeah, so one of the things I had, I live in Virginia, so I live near the government. Everyone says I just work for the government. Nobody could reveal the alphabet soup of the agency they work for. There's a lot of military members here. And when you talk to them about diversity and you talk to them about having people that are non-white uh, you know, in the military or women in the military, they'll tell you this. I mean, and I don't know if it's a talking point, but I'm buying it, which is if my life is on the line, and I'm fighting in Ukraine right now, and I'm fighting in Afghanistan or Iraq, I don't care if you're an atheist, I don't care if you're Rastafarian, I don't care what you look like, I don't care if you have dreadlocks, all I'm interested in is if I go down, can you carry my body over your shoulder and get me out of there? Now there's something to be said about that. That's the credibility, trustworthiness. Trustworthiness, one of the fundamental dimensions is reliance. Can I rely on you? So what does someone do immediately? I take a quick superficial look. Physically, do I think you can handle it if one of us gets shot in the leg and you can carry us through the happens there? Now, you can override that superficiality as the minority person trying to make an influence by showing how physically strong you are, how agile you are, how great your cardiovascular system is. But the one thing that you don't want to do if you want to be influential is be defensive about it. It's like, that's a great question because you know what? That could happen. I expect that to happen. I don't want that to happen. I'm going to prevent that from happening. Now you're showing that you have skin in the game, that you you can understand what it's like to be on the front lines, and you're going to show them. I can lift weight. I can carry you. I can do the job. And that's one element of gaining likability. That makes sense. 
one element of gaining likability. How do you define it, likability? Well, I would actually pull it out further than that. And I would say, what makes a compelling person? And I think it's a combination of being being likable and being competent. These kind of these things, these two things together. So to me, likability is underneath the larger umbrella of being a compelling person. And we want to be around compelling people no different than a junior high school. Which table do I sit at once lunch hits? I love that. There we go, Todd. We're, what, eight minutes in. I love it. Here's why. There's a je ne sais quoi. There's a missing piece. I was talking to a, a guy I really respect. I'll never forget. We had our first phone call. Was supposed to be professional. He emails me afterwards and he explains this idea of he calls them monsters. And monsters, he he told him a mentor of him said, one of the best things you can do in your life is accumulate a network of monsters. And basically, what monsters are are, you know, those people we all know, the rare person that we don't know why, but it's just we enjoy being in their presence, we're excited by it, we feel a connection. We, there's a lot of elements to it. And I think you just defined it, right? It's that compelling nature because you're credible. You have something I envy or enjoy and you're likable. So I can take a little bit of joy in that process and being around you. It's funny. Um, your friend uses the word monster. I use the word Titan, um, to describe the same ah. phenomena. So if I wanted to break down likability further, uh, you can you can use Kim Cameron's work from the University of Michigan, where he, um, I am stealing his work like an artist, where he talks about is part of likability is if Chris, I hang out with you and I walk away, is your energy and vitality level increase, decrease, or is actually neutral? Now, one of the things you and I haven't had these conversations before is I walk. It's it's this interesting paradox. Because if you're spending a long time having an extemporaneous conversation, you're using a lot of cortical power. And you would expect that you would be a little bit tired or more exhausted after the conversation. But after talking to you, I experience this paradox where I feel more energized and revitalized and I'm not ready to work out and actually work it harder. Not because you motivate me, because you've charged up my batteries in some way that happens there. And to me... Energy is the currency that determines likability. Whoa, Todd coming out firing. <laughs> I just had this conversation with a really good friend of mine the other day. We were trying to determine what makes that. We were actually trying to break it down. I'll tell you my stance, which she changed to an extent, but I still believe a big part of it is we get that energy boost and we can call it likability or whatever we want to call it for the sake of this conversation. but. From people who genuinely take an interest in us, right? So my thesis was, honestly, I don't think a lot of people are able to set themselves aside enough to truly be interested in another person, interested in what they say, what they believe, and potentially change their opinions based on it. That That's my stance on it. And, and that's why I go out into the world this way. That's how this podcast was born. Um, she had some different opinions. She said, I think it's that and, and then she added on to it. Do you have additional clarity onto what creates that energy transfer that you would call somebody a Titan and walk away energized by? Great conversation. Um, well, here's the first thing that it, that resonates as you're having that conversation, which is 
how do you test the alarm system to make sure it works so that when things go awry in your life with your friends or your monsters or your titans, that they're going to potentially be there. So one of the ways that you test the alarm system to make sure, like, would you be supportive of me if I got stage three cancer? Would you be supportive of me if I lost my job and I can count on you uh, in terms of opening up your your Rolodex or whatever the two, whatever it is in 2022, the metaphor, and, and help me out? One way is you share accomplishments and triumphs that you have in your life and you see our people, as you're saying, able to, uh, you know, subject their ego and put it on ice for a little while and listen to you and respond to you and take an interest in your triumphs and accomplishments. Now, you already had the positive event. They haven't had the positive event. But can they bask in that and ask questions and like, oh, what happened? Oh, how did they tell you about the award? Oh, does the award come with any benefits that comes there? Who else was was, were you nominated? How do you actually apply for this award in the first place? So they're not just saying good on you for getting an award. They're actually expanding your memory banks about the conversation by looking for the details and that elaboration of those positive experiences is a way to test of, oh, you care for and validate what I'm interested in. And this shows that you care about my own well-being. And those moments are the building blocks for developing a relationship where you don't have to be concerned about likability. You don't have to be concerned about having your game on when you're talking to somebody. You don't have to be concerned about self-presentation. Do I have to look intelligent or kind or virtuous? Because we're already establishing it and now we can just be ourselves. And that is... To be effortlessly yourself is the fundamental ingredient of a healthy friendship or a healthy alliance. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now, I use Rocket Money and it does all of that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month's, so I can clearly see my spending habits. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash smart. That's rocketmoney.com slash smart. One last time, rocketmoney.com slash smart. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
effortlessly yourself. That's what I was thinking about as you were talking about it. It's yeah, we want to be around people who we we can almost drop any roles we play in the world. It's that idea of flow. To this day, my favorite book of all time has been Flow. And I haven't been able to figure out exactly why. It's it's not like it's uh, an in-depth part of what I do professionally, but I think partly it's what you're talking about here. It's the time when you feel flow, when you forget about uh, time passing, who you are, your ego, all these things, in my mind, is the most freeing. And then finding it in certain places like sports or a deep conversation, wherever it might be, or music, is just one of those pure joys in life. Well, I was going to say, in terms of your career choice of running a podcast, it would right. it would make sense that flow would be your favorite construct because one of the one of the real core antecedents of flow is do you spend time with someone that's slightly at your level or slightly exceeds your level in some domain where you don't have full expertise on and you engage that and so you have to level up your game to match them or exceed them and you're oscillating right it's, it's like playing someone in pickleball that's slightly better than you where all of a sudden all of your muscle fibers and all of your hand-eye coordination has to be fully engaged. You are not paying attention to your smartphone. You are not paying attention to the weather. You have to be fully attentive there. And it sounds so daunting, but we know from that experience of it is the, it is a true unbridled pleasure that happens there. And again, you feel more energized walking out of, I just played with someone and we were at evenly, evenly matched or I leveled up my game in some capacity. And, and this is why Chekset Mahai, the guy who wrote the book Flow, his most famous study is showing that if you ask people, do you experience more pleasure at work or in leisure? Everybody says leisure. Like everybody says, like, I'm looking forward to the weekends. I'm on spring break right now as a professor. This is when, not we're, good for you. when we're looking forward for things. Well, not according to Chekset Mahai, because Chekset Mahai would be telling you is that you experience more pleasure and happiness during work. But you don't recognize it because you think that happiness is about smiling and happiness is about experiencing the state of joy. But flow, you're not thinking about experiencing joy. You are so embedded in the present moment, activating your strengths, talents, and skills. And as you said, your ego is not part of the equation. It is such a pleasurable state, but it's not a self-conscious state. So you don't reflect on it. You just experience it. And you have that three times more often at work than you do it during leisure time. I actually just a couple of weeks ago on the podcast interviewed Dan Pink, who obviously you're aware of similar, you know, uh, path for, for the both of you, I think, and what you write about. And we had a discussion that aligned with this, which was, do you find that when you're in a state of flow, maybe it's writing a book, let's say, that when you're done or when you're doing something else, you're thinking about going back to writing that book. And then that dichotomy, right? That uh, dual reality is actually the stressful part is like you want to be doing the thing, but then, you know, you also need balance at the same time. I had never seen someone put it in words before, uh, but I've had that state many a times. And I think you're onto something really big. Because now you went from – so think of like – think of the psychology of time perspective. 
So now you've gone from full present moment awareness into, into a goal that you care about, like a personally meaningful goal that you're working towards, whether it's pickleball, whether it's weightlifting, whether it's running, whether it's writing a book, doing a podcast. And now you have the aftermath. You haven't transitioned yet into the next domain of your life. So let's say after that activity, and if you have kids, you go into your parent role, your mom role, or your dad role. You need some level of psychological transition to close up the flow state and then re-enter this other situation, which may be an opportunity for flow or not. And, and there's something about clarifying what you learned and experienced from that flow state, thinking about what, you know, what are the things that you want to do the next time you enter that state. So I often write down notes in my personal journal about things that I want to build on or elaborate on from my writing, things that I screwed up on in a pickleball match that I want to kind of work on. You know, maybe I have to, I have to actually crouch more when I do a backhand serve, and I'll write this down. And because it's now written down and it's encapsulated in my little biblical journal, now I can go into the next state. But one more, one more thing. So lessons learned, what do you want to do the next time in the flow state? And then the third part for the transition is what are my intentions, not my expectations, as I open that door and go into dad role. So in this case, I think to myself, all right, how am I going to show up? And for me, it's always I want to be present. I want to be empathetic and I want to learn exactly what it is they're interested in, not what I'm interested in. Going back to what you said before, people often forget to leave their ego behind. And the third one is I want to bring my playfulness into my father role because you know many of us have experienced those of us who are in our 30s and 40s experienced some pretty hard hard you know hard crusty dad figures who are much more about the stick and much less about kind of the soft hug that happens there so i'm bringing the love i'm bringing the playfulness i'm bringing the presence and i'm bringing the empathy the thing about the intentions as i transition away so it's less stressful is my kids could ignore me completely they could just say, listen, I'm talking to my friends right now. Dad, I don't have time for you. With intentions, nothing, I showed up exactly as I wanted to show up, and I could check the box off and feel good about it. And because of the empathy, I'm like, hey, listen, your kids, you should be spending time with your friends. And there's no sour feelings, and there's no negativity as I enter that state. And I think, not that I want to judge parents too hard, but when you go into the expectations – you're setting yourself up for disaster because your kids might not be ready for you, even though you're ready for them. So that's almost another example of an idea I've heard of, which is kind of basing your reality on your actions as opposed to the result of those actions. In the example of the kid, right, you go and you say, look, here's my intent. Here's what I'm going to do. But given the fact I can't control the outcome, I also don't need to be necessarily upset or concerned with it. So if my intent is this, I execute on that intent and then the result isn't what I anticipated. That's okay because I controlled what I can. Yeah, it's interesting. I have to think about that because in some way there I'm not sure process and outcome is a perfect analog because because the outcome is was I present? Was I empathetic? And then was I bringing the play and the love? And so I'm not it's not even in the zeitgeist in terms of the outcome of my interaction with the kid. Wait, 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 wait. So now what I think we're talking about is having different goals, meaning the goal is, did I do what I wanted to do? 
And that's what you're defining as an outcome almost, right? Was I empathetic? Check. Yes. But that means then you are almost, like you said, it's not even in the zeitgeist. You're not paying attention at all, really, to the impact that has. And I don't know how to separate those things. And I know it's a great source of stress for me because, for example, let's say I were to write a book, and I'm saying that just given what you do, I have found in talking to hundreds of authors, right? They're like, I write because I like to write. I want to put the work out there. I want to get better. I want to be proud of it. The ones that keep doing it rarely say, I want to be a bestseller. I want to get rich. I want to do all those things. And I'm not very good at that, admittedly. Like, I'm just not. So are you? And if so, how do we do that? So I'm with you. So this is, this is I, I am a work in progress like most human beings. So I have not nailed this down. And I'm also, I push back on the people, which I don't believe them, when they say, well, I'm just doing it for that one person that I influence who writes me that one email. <laughs> so I spent six years in monk mode, all those days looking outside my window for my kids playing wiffle ball, and I sat there. And no, 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 just one person. Not buying that. That's that's. No, I'm not buying it either, by the way, unless it's like, you know, I'm saving one life. But aside from that, or like I've really influenced not. the Dalai Lama, who's now changed his teachings and has gotten right. leveled up his game right. because of me. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think like most things, we have to recognize that the human brain oscillates between states. You know, in the last book, when we, we I think that's the one we spoke of at the last podcast, The Upside of Your Dark Side. Um, yep. Robert and I had a chapter about you know, the benefits of mindlessness and saying that the human brain cannot stay in a mindful state all the time. And so when you get these lessons in these workshops and you go to these yoga classes or meditation classes, they talked about being mindful. What I don't think they spend sufficient time is, is that how do you deal with the oscillations, which is Chris, which is what I love what you're doing. You're talking about oscillating between flow and then the postmortem after the flow. And again, right. Chekset Maha didn't spend sufficient time on this. I think this is the beauty of books is they're meant to be living creatures that the reader works with and thinks of new questions that the authors didn't ask before. Um, so I, th I think it's there's an element of being compassionate about yourself when you do become outcome focused and you do think about how many units did I sell and you do think about how many downloads did this podcast episode have and you do think to yourself, um, how many times did my romantic partner, um, how many minutes did my romantic partner want to spend with me having their arm around me, holding my hand as we're at a social gathering versus spending time with all the other interesting people in the room. We have to give ourselves some compassion some self-compassion of not judging ourselves by things that are outside of our control. And afterwards, the things that bug us, if what's in our control that we can work towards? So if it ends up being writing a book and you haven't hit the bestseller list, which we know people know how to game the algorithm in this case, you can ask, exactly. you can, you can ask yourself the question of, is it getting momentum or not in terms of the cultures that I'm interested in? So, you know, so for this book, for example, there's there's an interesting chapter where I get to talk about my favorite band of all time. And I recently Fugazi? Fugazi. And I got a chance to, you know, interview who, the, by the way, who is Fugazi? I read that chapter. I was like, what is Todd talking about? Did, did I you swear. listen? Did you listen? Because I, I put down my favorite songs. I have songs not in the listened book. yet. Okay. That's <laughs> this is the most important part of the book. I think there's a list of five songs that are my recommended songs to introduce yourself to Fugazi. So 
I had a fun thing last week, which is, um, you know, there's there's these large, I think they have, there's over a million fans on Spotify that's following Fugazi right now, even though they disbanded in about 2004, 2006. And um, I joined these these groups that are Fugazi groups and said, hey, listen, I got a chance to interview the lead singer and kind of talk about the relevance of the way that they approach the music scene for influencing other people in other domains. And they ate it all up. And they were like, oh my God, I'm so glad people are talking about, finally, someone is talking about if you deconstruct the lessons from Fugazi, you can learn how to influence people better. And influencing that culture had the pleasure of being, you know, on anointed with an award from the literary society because I wanted to write a book of there's so much to learn from the Stooges and from MC5 and from the Ramones and, you know, all these years of kind of the punk rock history, they're lessons for leadership. And no one mixes the two because people think that, you know, they're not that being having the punk rock ethos of trying to find the best way that's often deviates from mainstream thinking is anathema to leadership where you're trying to keep a culture and an organization intact. And yet we know you know, in a VUCA world that's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, of course you need a punk rock ethos, which is if you don't evolve, then the environment is the dominant force that you're responding to as opposed to you predicting and anticipating what trends are important for a group to survive and to be healthy. You know, I'm glad you mentioned it because, of course, like we tend to do, especially when I talk to you as we went about seven directions there. There were a couple of specific things I wanted to. So now I'll get back to like really the linear approach to your book so we can walk people through this. But I will tell you one of the things that struck me. First, open the book. And I know this was intentional knowing you. The preface. Now, if I'm buying a book or if I'm about to read a book, The Art of Insubordination. So I'm thinking about, okay, being insubordinate, what's that mean? Is that, you know, standing up against the man? What is that? And then the prophet says, essentially, this book is for anyone who believes that at least some elements of conventional wisdom and practice require urgent improvement. For anyone who yearns to see more justice in the world, more freedom, more financial stability, more purpose, more community, more humanity. And it goes on. Why does insubordination help get us those things? One of the most important things about insubordination is you don't have to agree with the principled rebels idea. So I just had a conversation. I'll give you an example. I had a conversation a couple days ago where somebody said they're, they are a shareholder for the Green Bay Packers. And, and they were, they were upset because the Green Bay Packers supported the LGBTQ community and Reggie White, who was a famous Green Bay Packer football team for those people that don't know who are listening. (laughs) Um, spoke out, spoke out and saying, you know, we sh- you know we should support gay rights and have you know the rainbow flag represented here and there. This guy was upset. He was pissed off. Um, and then he went further. He said, you know what? I was part of that lifestyle, quote unquote. And then Reggie White prayed for me, and now long I'm no longer one of them. And I just feel that there's a lot of other values in this stakeholder group that he's not taking into consideration. Now your immediate response. As a professor where everyone is someone who, you know, is my potential student, I'm going to care for, I don't care what your demographic is, is to kind of be a little bit upset. But there's, here's, here's where this guy is beneficial, this principled rebel, we'll say, is he did speak something very important about the organization, which is 
when the leader does not take stock that there are a heterogeneous values and heterogeneous personalities and perspectives and only assumes that you are one congealed body and I'm going to treat you as if you're a singular entity and I don't care about the diversity that's in there, that's, that's potentially problematic. Now, you don't have to agree with this guy, which I don't, his viewpoint, but by him speaking out, it makes people realize, huh, what are the values of the, of the shareholders of the Green Bay Packers? Like, like we haven't really done an inventory of who are these people, not their jobs, not how much money they've spent to become a shareholder, but what do they care about? What are their cherished interests? What would they sacrifice themselves for? And why are they for or against these issues? And who should decide whether or not the organization represents the majority of these people or considers the minority of these people. Just him speaking agree or disagree gets the organization to think, you know what, we've been taking the group for granted as a singular monolithic entity, and they're not. It makes people think more divergently, it makes people more creative in their decision making, and it leads to better decision making in the end point. So is it fair to say that those that are insubordinate are more likely to at least challenge common wisdom and force a matter of analysis that we aren't used to doing on a day-to-day overwhelmed basis. I think you can be on a, in a continuum of quiet to loud in how you engage in principled rebellions. Sometimes it's by somebody not speaking. And so you can think of, I'll get the first name wrong, um, What's this? It's, I think it's Stanislav Petrov, and he's described as the man who saved the world. <laughs> Beats me. <laughs> so Petrov is his last name. So he was he was a Russian during the Cold War. He was working he was working the computer arsenal to decide whether we're go, they're going to unleash missiles on other countries. And there was an alarm that said the U.S. is attacking Russia, and we have to we have to respond in return. And he just he just looked at the algorithm, smart, smart guy, had engineering computer background and said, I think this is wrong. And so he decided his job was to press the red button to say, we're going to we're, we're going to retaliate. And he thought about it, looked carefully at the data and said, I don't trust the computer and did nothing. And if he had pressed that button, it was World War Three. And by him, so by him doing nothing, I'm, I'm simplifying the story, but by of but by him, yeah, by him doing nothing, he was he's underappreciated because it's inaction, right? You talk to Dan Pink, we focus on the action, not the inaction. Him doing nothing was a powerful thing, and there's something to be said about that as we think about government, as we think about businesses, and we think about our as a parent. You know, if, if your child comes home and they're 18, and it's the first time that they come home a little bit buzzed. And they didn't drive home, so some, somehow else they got home. Um, by you potentially doing nothing and not reacting right then and there and waiting for the next day to have a conversation, that might be the best move in terms of a principled rebellious act where you are going against the, the status quo instinct of a parent. You're supposed to say something and stop your kid from drinking because they're underage. And that's not always the right action to take. And sometimes we have to... We have, to, we have to question popular sentiments because we know our kid, we know our household, we know how they're going to respond, and we have to think, what is the end game that we want? Do we want to 
upset them and create a punishment so where they don't change their behavior? Or do we want to have a serious conversation the next day to figure out what went on so that we can have a common understanding of what's healthy behavior, what's unhealthy behavior? I have a lot to say around that. Also, you just highlighted a um, interaction, a very similar interaction I had with my parents when I was younger. So that was kind of creepy. Um, and they they did. They responded with a, a sense of inaction that I will never forget. You know what? I'll tell the story. Yeah, please. Quick. Maybe we'll edit it out. I was probably 16. Um, yeah, actually, I, I was not even 16 because I couldn't drive. Uh, we had pagers back in the day. Don't judge me. I was not a drug dealer. <laughs> Okay. We just had them. We didn't have cell phones. And a friend paged me and whatever, we were paging back and forth. And they said, Hey, I'm going to come pick you up. We're going to go to so-and-so's house. So uh, I snuck out middle of the night. Let's call it midnight. Now I wasn't drinking actually. Uh, and I would admit if I was, I'm, I'm no saint, but I wasn't. The problem was I couldn't drive. So I'm at this person's house. It's like one, 2 AM. I get a page from my parents and I'm like, Oh, oh shit. Like you have to, guys, you have to take me home right now. It's the first time I'd ever snuck out. It was the first time I ever met call, like whatever. I go home. My parents are sitting on the steps and they're like, where were you? And I was like, so-and-so's house. And they said, okay, go to bed. We'll talk about it in the morning. Next morning comes. I say, how you doing? I said, good. They were like, what happened last night? I was like, look, somebody came, pick me up, went to so-and-so's house. They were like, you good? You safe? You all right? I said, yeah. I said, okay, look, we trust you, but let's keep it that way. And that was the end of the conversation. And it was one of those defining moments because I really was a pretty good kid. And I always now ask myself, how do I parent my children the way my parents did? Uh, it's just a powerful moment. And I think you kind of highlighted it. I think it would have gone differently if there was a lot of screaming and yelling, because really what I did was not that big a deal. But a lot of people make it a big deal. Yeah. No, don't cut this out. This is this is. I think this is a very important parenting story because none of us know how to parent. None of us got the manual. <laughs> yeah. We're still, still waiting for it. It's been 15 years waiting for it to <laughs> land in my hands. So, um, supply chain problems. Yeah. <laughs> it, is I, I think we err towards speaking more than we need to because we're afraid of the silence and we're afraid that if we don't do something, if the, if something happens, it's our responsibility. And I think one of the elements, and we're all leaders in some capacity in our lives, one of the elements of being a good leader is to know when to, to shut up and just let let the words sink in. And so when you tell someone, listen, that was that was an amazing piece of work. You exceeded my expectations. Keep doing it. Nothing else needs to be said. Just leave it at that and let it let let that sit without the excess words that because so you want, you know, you want as you, Chris, had a memory with your parents, you want your your the people that work for you just to sit with those words and be like, "Wow, I exceeded their expectations." If they did, right, and not and not have the filler of describing much more, not belabor the point. That's a yeah. that's a great point. One I'm going to have to remember. Getting back to it, you mentioned a few times in the beginning discussion about the art of insubordination, this idea of principled insubordination or principled rebellion, which I think is a key differentiator of your entire thesis. Would you tell us about that? What is it? Why did you specifically choose that phrasing? Yeah, if you go into the Cambridge Dictionary, Oxford English Dictionary, insubordination is essentially is someone that refuses to obey orders, rules, and authority figures. Now, for those of us that have a natural disagreeable personality uh, or hate totalitarian regimes, that automatically stirs up a lot of emotions. 
And principle insubordination is you're doing it not because you're reckless, not because you're impulsive, not because you're trying to prove something to other people, not because you want to be a James Dean or a Jim Morrison, um, you know, you know, or a Betty Davis kind of character. It's because you recognize that you recognize these questions. Why is this rule there? Why does this person get to tell me what the rule is? Who taught, the, who taught this person who's telling me that I have to follow this rule? And you, you basically have these questions consciously or unconsciously. Is that some rules just don't make sense at all. You know, if, if you look back over the course of human history, and let's just take the, the, the past 60, 70 years. Child abuse. It was only 1968 that child abuse was actually a thing. And you had psychiatrists and psychologists talk. I mean, it's actually phenomenal if you think. It's not like it didn't exist beforehand. So in 1969, you had this psychiatrist, Kemp, who wanted to say that he's been noticing with his clients as a pediatrician and as a pediatric psychiatrist that a bunch of these kids have physical abrasions and bruises and and injuries that appear to be due to the, to the caregivers, the primary caregivers. And he was about to give a talk. And to talk about how this is this is a social and cultural problem that we have to deal with. He was told in advance, you can't do this. You are going to upset the fibers of society. And family is so... Got to go back to 1969. And family is so important. Don't disrupt the family. You're going to get a bad reaction to this. So what did this guy do? He called it child batterhood syndrome. As if it's a medical disease that either you have or don't have. As if you have schizophrenia or don't have schizophrenia. If you have a substance abuse disorder or not. As if it was a disease that a psychiatrist can help you fix. As opposed to you have a messed up relationship with your kid and you are abusing your kid. But the world wasn't ready for it yet. And he was told this. It, so it was a slow patient traction of principled insubordination. And there's there's two things here. So part of this answers your question about what's principled. And part of this is about the strategies for doing principled insubordination, which was if he came across in 69 and talked about this is a social and cultural problem, society wasn't ready for it yet. By saying it was a medical syndrome, it got on the map so at least psychiatrists and physicians could capture it diagnose it and make sure that it was marked so that a kid could be protected and saved. And sometimes we have to take the lesser of positions that we want to because we have we want to make a difference so badly. And this is a really important lesson for modern social activists is you want to go the speed of social media. You want to fix a problem in 24 hours and 72 hours. And the thing is sometimes it, it, it hurts to say this. You have to pull back a little bit and not say exactly what you want to say because you want the audience to be receptive to the message. Anytime I talk about things like influence, or in this case, you know, a, a, a variance of that, this insubordination, I personally get a little worried that I won't be able to implement it because of this paradigm I have around being fully authentic, meaning it's hard. For me to mince words or utilize tactics, and I'm not calling it a tactic, but really it's hard to sacrifice that authenticity for effectiveness. Now, logically, 
I don't necessarily agree, but there's just something about me. And I, I teach leadership development. So it comes from this idea that there's a lot of times you have to phrase things a certain way to get the output you want, which is what a lot of leaders do. One of the definitions is a, the skillful use of influence, right? Do you ever struggle with that? Or what do you say to the person who says, look, Todd, I want the results that come from this. I just don't know how to title it something different, kowtow to the audience, things of that nature to get the result I want. Yeah. As someone who works in organizations, I mean, this is a, a huge problem people have as well as social activists have this. Um, you know, we could dissect any current trend right now, whether it's climate change, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's book banning on the right or the left, um, you know, whether it's focusing on transgender athletes in college sports and professional sports, any of these topics, um, this comes up in these in terms of being authentic and genuine in your communications. And I think here's where people get mixed up. You can be genuine and authentic and not reveal everything that you're thinking about. You're able to – because there's nobody that we reveal everything to. Not our romantic partners, not our parents, not our best friends. We, I mean we do have friends where we – they can take it to the grave and we can share our deepest insecurities and fears and dreams. But we still hold back strategically about the things that we share. I mean authenticity is essentially the element of – making sure that the interests and values that we hold dear that are not a reflection of the groups that we're a member of, they're not a reflection of the groups we aspire to be of, but they are part of who we are as a person. That is what is the core element that infiltrates and infuses the message that we have. And this is a problem people have in society is they have a hard time disentangling. What is it that that I'm saying because I'm trying to show I'm a loyal group member Versus what am I saying because this is what I believe in. And I think one of the things that people, particularly in the United States, have a difficulty with is they can smell the disingenuousness. You, you hear people talk about um, beliefs that you've, you've seen. You've seen that they don't, they don't stand for this, but this is their public persona that they're trying to play with. And one of the things that I would say is, is that w- to be an exceptional leader – is that you have to allow some level of uncertainty that you believe in between objectively how the world is and how you want it to be and the subjective part, which is this is an op-ed. This is what I prefer. This is what I desire. This is what I'm motivated to do. And when you can disentangle the objective data parts and the subjective op-ed parts, you're much more compelling in terms of the audience listening to you, but it's also it resonates with you more as a person is that you can be who you are and still be a leader. But but part of that is it's not it's it's okay to self-censor yourself a little bit and, and it's strategically because you know that the audience might not be ready for the message and you know that the end game is that you want to Get people to understand that there's a benefit of going this way and not to have automatic defenses kind of pop up and operate. I feel like you just used some of your own, uh, you know, writing techniques on me there because I'm imagining it. I can't I don't know. But you definitely did just change my perspective on it, which is this idea that, look, sometimes by filtering, modifying or essentially not sharing everything doing it in a skillful way, you are better serving those around you. 
than by just lazily saying, I'm going to present it in the way that makes sense to me, uh, in my paradigm, in my opinion, which could honestly be slightly more selfish and also less impactful. Yeah, I'll, I'll take I'll take a concrete example, sticking back to parenting. So one of the things that I believe in personally is that if you don't teach your children about the, as if they are not young adults in the making, but kids trying to make sense of the world. And so exposing them when they're ready to movies that are before their time. So under the age of 13, seeing R-rated movies. Um, I just had my nine-year-old watch The Matrix with me for the first time, awesome. which was, I realized, I still haven't figured out completely even 20 <laughs> years later, much less much less my nine-year-old. And when there's a violent scene, because I know she doesn't like violent scenes, I, I let her know, listen, I'm going to put my hands over your eyes because I know you don't like violent scenes, and we'll return back to the storyline that happens there. I have had many parents saying, tell me very comfortably that you know it is inappropriate parenting there's a reason that movies have an r rating which means under 17 not recommended and i usually respond who going who back recommended? to the principles <laughs> who who are these people that come up with these ratings what which were the elements of it that they believe is too young for a kid when is when 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 can a kid show you that they're able to see something that is supposedly for 17 and older and if that's the case how do you create a society where we, we stratify it by age as opposed to intellectual intellectual development, emotional development, and their own curiosity. And to me, is as long as there's a guide who's well-meaning, who's curious, and who's caring, is that these are not problematic. Now, my next-door neighbor, who maybe I'll have him listen to this, he won't let his kids watch any movie over G until they're the age of 13. That happens there. Now, I just, we have arguments about this all the time, which is I think it's... I think that we don't want kids to be to age too quickly. At the same time, we're part of our job is to have them ready for the world and they won't always have us as a guide. And one of the beauties of, of books and of movies that are, are have scenes that are beyond their mature level is to expose them safely to this content before they experience it in the real world and actually develop the perspective taking and the emotional intelligence of exploring through characters what they're experiencing, experience their emotions so they don't have to experience it directly. And there's a lot of good science behind this about the value of fiction for doing this. Now, for me to persuade a parent that this is the way to go, I wouldn't say that all profanity is on the table and that nudity is perfectly fine at any age for any kid that happens there. Um, What I would say is, is that your job is to have conversations with your kid about all the topics about humanity and you figure out what they're like as a person and what their personality is. And there is no paint by numbers approach in terms of what stimuli your child is is acceptable or unacceptable for your kid. And it's going to constantly change. So unless you're gauging constantly, you are going to underestimate your kid's intelligence, their wisdom and their fortitude if you don't go by a regular gauge of what they can and can't handle. Yeah. And for those listening who perk up around the pieces of this discussion that deal with parenting, there is a great part in this book about how to instill this idea of insubordination, of course, the principled approach. And I just wanted to highlight that because we don't have time to cover all of the nuances. But there was something here that I had to ask you, which is if you are making the case that we need this principled insubordination, 
my concern becomes in an age of fake news, false information, the dangers, the downside. When everyone has a megaphone, and I believe we're in a more tolerable time than ever before, if we start espousing the idea of question everything, push back, don't follow the norms, are we just lending or are we just pouring gasoline on the fire that assumes everybody should be airing all of their grievances, opinions, ideas that are not rooted in fact? I'm glad you brought this up because this is a, it always, Every error is the right time for principled rebels, but it feels like right now needs them more than ever, which is probably what everyone has said at every decade of the course of human <laughs> history. Um, social media has can be bifurcated into it is amazing for the democratization of voices. You don't no, no longer need a podium. You don't need Penguin books. You don't need to, you don't need Warner Music to tell you that you are a, officially a good singer. You can just go on there and just post whatever it is that you want to that happens there. At the same time, is as you're saying, it's very hard to separate uh, objective facts and subjective interpretations. What what I would argue is that everybody should have healthy sense of skepticism, but really understand what skepticism means. Skepticism is not cynicism. Um, skepticism is the notion of you need to provide some evidence to me that what you're saying has go back to credibility. It's trustworthy. Um, it's unbiased. You're, you're providing unvarnished information and you have the competence to actually talk about the topic you're talking on. And once you focus on those pillars, you start to distinguish very quickly between unprincipled rebels and principled rebels. So if you have no knowledge of epidemiology, you have no knowledge about how to read a randomized controlled trial in terms of whether a vaccine or a medicine is effective. If you have no knowledge of um, how guns operate and, and in terms of how can, how can you fake Sandy Hook in terms of, uh, you know, you know, whether it actually exists or not, like how like what level of of sheer impossibility it is to kind of kind of to to say that this was kind of like a, you know, a false stage situation for a for political ends. If you can't provide evidence and credibility of what's fact and what's not fact and you don't have the information behind it, then you're at the point where you have to listen more than you speak. And that's hard for people to do. Um, you know, you know, not all voices are equal just because everyone has an equal platform. And this isn't, and this isn't to say that everyone who has a degree in epidemiology has got this information right. I think one of the big problems that people have had over the course of COVID is they have caught the hypocrisies, and it's very important for the leaders who are who are discussing what should we be doing during a pandemic, is that. Don't fool people by saying that you could have a racial reckoning and protest and it simultaneously say that we should not be convening in large group settings. We can see that hypocrisy. It's better. I mean, I realize this is Monday morning quarterbacking. <laughs> it is better to say this is a break from all of the recommendations that we're having. We don't support it. At the same time, we understand because there's a lot of marginalized individuals who've had so many decades of difficulties that they're doing this. That is not not recommended. It's going to become a problem. Um, it's every it's it goes against what the CDC is saying. 
Um, so we are not supportive. And we want to be clear about that. At the same time, we are not the police. We're not first line responders. And that's not our jurisdiction for doing that. If they came across with that message, I wonder how much less malinformation would have occurred in the aftermath, in the one and a half year aftermath, because you reduce the hypocrisy to near zero. You show that you're trustworthy. You show that you don't have biases. So there's, we have to think chicken and egg here. They're often experts that that use their expertise in inappropriate manners that that sow the seeds of recklessness and impulsiveness and unprincipled rebels. I agree with you on that. Listen, Todd, we don't have a lot of time left. And and I wanted to with with books like yours and oftentimes, I mean, people listening know this. I like to understand the why I like to understand the theory, the thesis. Sometimes we get pushback. What's the action? Right. And I personally, and actually I'm talking to my listeners here, like reach out and tell me if this is a pain in the ass for you. But I believe that the actions and your book is really well set up to define those actions you can find in the book. Right. I want to help people expand the way they think they can then figure out what to do about it. But that said, I want to leave with an appetizer here. So if people have been listening and they've understood this idea of principled rebellion and they've thought about how we need to start raising these and we have to uh, focus on this idea of credibility, what's your favorite recommendation on how somebody start moving into enacting this idea of principled insubordination in the areas of their life where they believe are worth pushing on and pushing for? There's a lot of angles I could take. Let me let me take one that is not mentioned in the book. So this is goes Ooh, beyond the book. Look at this. Made that the director's cut on the cutting yeah. room floor. <laughs> so w- one of the things that almost made it in there, which is really important, is the notion of when you're crafting a message to an audience, you have to focus on ease. The ease to which someone can actually in- enact those views, those innovations, those ideas you're saying. The ease in terms of how is it easy is it to switch from the orthodoxy that I'm currently doing right now and to, to switch to your messaging. And just think about it as, as like switching cable companies. One of the reasons that cable companies have such a monopoly in suburban life is that they know that it is so freaking annoying to get a new box with new passwords and a new router system that you're probably not, you, you know, probably don't have the technological skills to do that. And so you, they can just keep on raising the prices knowing you're not going to oscillate back and forth between the two cable companies that happen there. So when you're crafting a message, don't be the cable company. Make it very clear is that the switching costs exactly what they are, that it's going to be short term, and that here are the benefits exactly that you're going to receive if we are to move away from the status quo and move in this direction. Ease of processing easy to understand, easy, simplistic words, and ease in terms of try to show that the costs are actually small for making the switches. I can't help but to just notice that so much of this is dependent on the person's ability or want to put effort and energy into influencing, into changing the actions in the minds of somebody else. And I think that's such a key piece of all of this, which is you can have strong beliefs, you can question the orthodoxy, but unless you do it skillfully, it's kind of on you if it doesn't work out. I love that you're going this direction. You know, what, what, there was a review that was published, it was a critique of the book, 
and it said that I spent too much time talking about why and how principled rebels are beneficial in a group and they make groups smarter. And that's exactly why I included it because what you just said right there is that I want to sell to people that this is worth it, that life is scarce. You know, I had a friend of mine die at 43 last week um, and left her, her husband and child behind. And every time someone dies that dies before their time, it's a reminder of there's so few years we have on this planet. And to pay a dividend to future Chris and future Todd and the future version of all the listeners that are on this podcast, which is you are going to want to say 20 years from now, I chose the meaningful path. I chose to try to persuade people that here is a better way to approach the organization I'm in, the neighborhood I'm in, the society I'm in, and I got a lot of friction, and I was ostracized, and I was rejected, but I knew that I would be so upset with myself and have so much regret if I didn't at least try doing that. And you're right. It is it is a big responsibility. There is a big onus on the principled rebel to actually want to do this. And what I'm arguing is it's worth it because every society evolves quicker as a function of a few principled rebels getting together as a coalition and saying, you know what, this is this is not the way society should function. And we're going to make sure that it improves in a better way. Todd, you just lit me up, man. You lit me up. I just there's a couple of things that for about 15, 20 years, I'm just like, we're getting it wrong. We're getting it wrong. And it, and really, I haven't done a lot about it. And what you just said coupled with, and, and it was just the other day, that's why it's on my mind, but Dan Pink's book about regret has really been on my mind. Like, what are the things I will regret? And he changed the way I think about it. So this idea of taking that stance and, uh, and then thoughtfully influencing others around that stance it's a worthwhile it's it's a worthy endeavor and i think your book provides a really good blueprint for how to do it no i appreciate that and, and i should probably add one other thing because we didn't hit this yeah um you know there's there's a there's another element that's not in the book it's uh there's a quiz on my website about the four archetypes of principled rebels and one of them is what i call the niche carver seeing it over history. And this is about the rebellion is not against society. It's about how you should live your life. And so I've, I've met so many people that decided that, hey, I don't want to have kids. And, you know, people look down on them. And people that have decided, like, I don't want to live with my romantic partner. I want to have two separate houses because I love my autonomy so much. And I want to say to people is these are acts of principled rebellion. As you're saying that why is there a single path to well-being and I view a different way for living my life. And I'm not detracting from anyone else's well-being. And I want to empower people to recognize and consider that there are ways off the beaten path that will be more fulfilling for you. And they'll be challenging and you'll get friction. And it'll be worth it because, again, you only got one one life. Well, Todd, uh, this seven-year hiatus has lived up to the hype. I really appreciate you taking time uh, to be on the show and and just enjoyed every second of it. Again, the book is The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. Where else can we go, Todd? I've seen you out there. You're out there, man. You're, you're, you're really uh, stepping up your content game. And, and this, like you said, I think one of the best things I've seen you create. So congratulations on that. Where can the audience find you, learn more, 
read more from you. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, thankfully, there are no bots, so I have my name, Todd Cashin, on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram. And um, really, I'm anyone who who's interested in this stuff. I mean, I I want to create an an entire battalion of characters who just live life their own way, and they're focusing on society's well-being and their well-being and trying to, you know, make the world better. I mean, the world constantly moves towards a utopian ideal. And we need people who are going to speed it up because who knows how long the Earth's going to be around for. What a great way to do your own art of insubordination. I see what you're doing. You're living, living your thesis here. Todd, thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. A big thank you to this week's guest, Todd Cashton. The episode was hosted, as always, by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Todd's book, The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively, is available wherever books are sold. And now for the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you enjoy the show and want to support us financially, you can head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up, and we'll see you all next episode.